had a, a very nice Easter. Um, thanks to all of you who attended our bonus Easter Monday church history class. Uh, as uh, we left it there, we were just on the other side of the Protestant Reformation. So uh, those of you who did not attend missed about 600 years or so. Um, but that's your loss. Uh, no. Um, I, did, I do hope everybody had a nice Easter. Um, we only have a few classes left, so I'm going to do a combination of sort of <clears throat> skipping certain things, picking up the pace, and supplementing between our, our next few weeks uh, with, with some additional materials just to get us, you know, to um, a reasonable end point. Um, I've looked at a number of the exams, not all of them, and I like to kind of post them all together so some people don't have their grades before others. Um, so I'm, I'm, I would think by next week you'll have, have those um, as well. So um, we left off last time uh, a couple weeks ago now with kind of the story at this point where the um, the emperors, the Holy Roman emperors, specifically the German emperors, were playing this, you know, really crucial role in kind of saving the papacy from itself in many ways, um, and, and some of the excesses and the the um, the buying and selling of of church offices, which. Um, you may be familiar with this term. I don't think I pointed it out. Maybe I did, but I don't think I did. Um, like the the sale of a of a sacrament or a church office is known as simony. Um, this will be a, a one of the major issues that's leveled the sort of the criticism that's leveled by the Protestant reformers. But you know, when I mentioned uh, the whole thing about um, Benedict the the ninth and and the three popes in Rome um, we kind of left off there where you know there had been this whole situation where the papacy was essentially you know sold um, this happened in other places as well where people would kind of purchase their way into becoming a bishop of you know, whatever city um, so simony was you know this purchase of uh, an ecclesial office it also refers to paying for sacraments um and then of course like the the um in the case of the popes but it wasn't just limited to the popes uh you know obviously the the um sort of immoral excesses around you know the whole range of human behavior from you know greed and and gluttony to lust and sort of uh sexual excesses and, and, and all the rest, um, you know, there had been a sort of real um, crisis of, of sort of leadership and morality within the church. We focus mostly on the papacy, obviously, but it's not to suggest that that's limited to, um, to Rome. And the reason I'm, I'm, you know, sort of starting here um, is where we left off was with, you know, uh, the, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry III getting involved to resolve this scandal around the three different claimants to the, the papacy in Rome, and, and he basically kind of kicked them all out and, and saw to it that, that um, 
you know, a, a new person was in, installed. And um, this would continue in um, in the, the coming years with, with Henry. Sorry, I'm hearing a little bit of feedback. Um, yeah, Rob Langs has to mute his phone. You can mute everybody. Oh, okay. Call. Um, there we go. Fucking dope. Okay. So, um, so, um, yeah, stop. another pope that Henry III, the Holy Roman Emperor, was involved in sort of promoting and, and helping to Go essentially to the get Go to the elected as Pope yeah. was a guy called Leo IX. And Leo IX had a sort of short uh, pontificate from 1049 to 1054. Short but consequential. Um, I think it's worth saying that Henry III... Um, I'm not sure, maybe I mentioned this last time at the end, so it's worth reiterating. Henry III probably re uh, represents something like the high water mark of the imperial control over the papacy during this, this era of the Middle Ages. Um, you know, his involvement in resolving, you know, the mess of the three, three popes or alleged three popes and then his continued sort of care and um, watchfulness over the direction of the church, you know, really had a tremendous impact. And his appointment of Leo IX, as we'll see, um, you know, in many ways kind of sets in motion the next, um, you know, several generations of, of the church and, and the direction that it's going to go. And, um, you know, we see again, in a kind of, I think, maybe unexpected way, how, um, you know, the, the state, in this case, the Holy Roman Emperor, had a really critical role to play in assisting the church during a period of, of great turmoil. It's worth noting, though, as we'll see, you know, later on tonight, that this didn't come without, uh, without a cost. Um, and while you know, the way I've been sort of describing it, I, I, I hope <laughs> fairly and accurately, you know, is that on balance, like the, the Holy Roman Emperors were playing a kind of positive role in getting the, you know, the church, the papacy back on track. I think that's, that's right. That's fair. But at the same time, there's also a kind of precedent being set, a kind of um, expectation that future emperors will have around what their role should be, what their level of involvement and influence and maybe even control should be within the church. And that will lead to, you know, significant, uh, significant struggle as we'll see. But before proceeding, if you will, with Leo the ninth, um, you know, Leo the ninth marks the first and what I'm kind of inclined to think of as a, a sort of reforming uh, group or reforming party within the papacy in the Middle Ages. Um, so when he becomes Pope in 1049, as I said, he sets in motion a number of reforms and his advisors, you know, will, will go on after him to do a number of things to really bring the 
the stature of the papacy to you know really um, substantially higher and, and more sort of influential levels, and also you know create reforms within the church. So it kind of bears asking the question: How did we? Um, how do we get here? Like, where did Leo the Ninth come from? Where does this reforming party, if you will, come from, such that uh, they can kind of help rescue the church or help change the course that the church had been on? And I think, you know, a big part of the answer has to do with a much slower process that was taking place in the monasteries over the centuries leading up to the 11th century or so. And as is so often the case, um, you know, we'll see this in other eras. Reform in religious life, reform in, in monasteries among religious communities, often has, um, well, I guess trickle down isn't quite the right metaphor here, but like it often has sort of um, downstream effects, if you will, um, th throughout the church in that a number of these reforming orders, you know, wind up becoming kind of the incubators for uh, future bishops, let's say, who, who wind up to, to be very important or, or saints who are you know, very important. And so um, that's, that's, I think, a big part of the explanation for how we get um, this shift by the 11th century. And it really starts with um, uh, the gradual building of momentum or reform that, that goes back to uh, religious life. And so you have, um, if, you, if you're looking on, at the outline, you know, I'm on the section reform movements and religious life, but I'll just um, type it in in case you don't have, have it in front of you. Oh, sorry. Benedict of Anian, that way, um, is sort of one of the first key figures here. He's a great monastic reformer, um, was, you know, to give you a sense, this is now going back, uh, if you, you know, he, he died in the ninth century, the early ninth century. This is going back to Charlemagne's time. So we're kind of pausing this story about popes and emperors and rewinding a little bit to, to look at these uh, religious reformers. Benedict of Anian, um, you know, had a very simple agenda uh, in the ninth century. And, and that was, you know, he founded several monasteries or was involved in um, the founding of several monasteries. And he didn't really have, you know, this grand strategy or plan. His main, um, his main purpose was to organize or just to run, you know, the monasteries um, according to a strict observation um, like kind of the fullest, most strict observation of the rule of St. Benedict. So, you know, uh, in the centuries before, sixth, seventh, eighth centuries, um, there was just sort of varying levels of observance. Um, I think maybe I've described this pattern before, but a lot of times, around the founding of a new order or community, there's all this great zeal. Sometimes that zeal lasts for, you know, a couple generations. Um, but then over time, 
maybe it starts to um, it starts to to wane a little bit or decrease. Um, maybe little accommodations are made here and there, um, but but by the time you're you know four or five or six generations out from the founder, you know considerably different set of standards. And um, and then sometimes there's you know another wave of reform. We'll see this um, you know with uh, you know with the Carmelites, the discalced Carmelites, and, and uh, you know some of the great saints that come out of that tradition in a few centuries from now. Um, so Benedict of Anian's plan was was not you know revolutionary or, or you know overly innovative. It was just to return to strict observance of the rule of Benedict. And this had um, a really significant impact. The monasteries, uh, again, that he was involved with, became much more engaged in contemplation, self-denial. And interestingly, this, you know, somewhat something of a reputation um, started to develop around Benedict. He became uh, one of the key advisors to um, to an emperor and, and other important sort of political figures of the time. Um, and so it really was, uh, you know, a kind of simple proposition that had uh, significant, significant um, consequences, which was to sort of recommit to, you know, a more ascetic, strict, kind of prayer oriented, contemplative version of of the monastic life, which, you know, drew a lot of people to, you know, to, uh, to join the monastery. A similar thing, um, you know, a similar kind of movement, if you will, that, uh, you know, will, will again have tremendous, uh, have a tremendous impact, takes place um, about, oh, 100 years later or so in the 10th century with um, the founding of a monastery in Cluny, which is in eastern France. And um, the idea, it was, it was sort of a, uh, a simple, another kind of simple idea of wanting to have a monastery that was, you know, really serious about prayer and, and worship and, and self-denial and, and all that. But was also that would but would also be free from any kind of um, worldly interference, and so this, believe it or not, included uh, you know along these lines was included interference from the local bishop, and so in in nine ten year nine ten, Cluny was established as I say in eastern France with the idea that it would be kind of this self-governing monastery under the protection of the Pope and thereby um, protected from any worldly or Episcopal um, interference. Like in the previous case with Benedict of Anian, the, the sort of rule of the monastery was simple it was just an, a very strict observance of the rule of saint benedict um and and what we see over the the 900s the 10th century is a series of you know very compelling 
abbots that led the monastery at Cluny um, and wound up, you know, sparking, sort of serving as the, um, uh, as like the inspiration for others to take up this work of reform. Dr. Fernella, who, who, uh, who founded this monastery and was it part of a, of a formal order at that point or was it more just willy-nilly haphazard? Yeah, good, very good question. Um, so the, the founder, oops, typing it in. Uh, the founder was a guy called Duke William the Pious. Um, and he had secured sort of the political and ecclesiastical support um, and gave up his dukedom, I guess would be the word, um, to do this. Um, and, you know, it's the second part of your question about is it part of an order is a tricky one to answer because in a way, the, the answer, I mean, I think technically speaking, I, I'm inclined to say no because there wasn't really a systematic, like, Benedictine order, let's say. Um, you know, Clu the, the Cluny reforms are going to be really the first time that we get close to um, what we start to understand as religious orders. But prior to then, you know, it would be very common for a number of orders to adopt the rule of St. Benedict of Nursia, let's say, but not necessarily see themselves as like Benedictines. It's just like that level of organization doesn't quite exist yet, but actually Clooney will have a, a big role to play in bringing us closer to that. And so I would say, you know, they weren't really part of an order, but certainly, you know, they, you know, they were inspired by Benedict of, of Nersha. And, and so in that sense, you know, they're, they're kind of Benedictine in their approach, certainly, um, if not the way we would maybe think of them, you know, the way we would think of, um, like the Capuchins coming from the Franciscans, as we'll see, you know, in a couple centuries, let's say, um, you know, this is, is a much looser kind of arrangement. Great. So, you know, just like I, I think I've, you know, mentioned um, at, at other at other points, sometimes these, you know, things or events or people that, that wind up be, becoming very important don't necessarily start out with an agenda to, you know, lead a reform movement or something. And that's, that's kind of the same thing we see with Clooney. It doesn't seem, I mean, there's no evidence in the writings of, you know, uh, William the Pious or, or some of the other abbots that came after him, that they were really seeking to, you know, affect this great kind of revolution in, in monastic life and, and create this really strong reforming movement. Um, but that's actually kind of what they did. Um, you know, again, there's, there's no real, um, there's no, uh, real like secret sauce here. It, it was, it was a, um, a commitment to, you know, a, a very serious, um, approach, kind of strict approach to the rule of Benedict that, that stood out in many ways. Um, you know, just the way Benedict of Anian had stood out a hundred years prior. Um, but Clooney wound up just becoming more influential and, and served as a model for other monasteries across really France and Italy. Um, and so it was, um, you know, it became this kind of example of how to run a monastery 
and a number of you know other monasteries that weren't originally affiliated with it or whatever started to you know see what was going on there and adopt these ideas and um over time what we see is there was so much sort of imitation if you will of you know how how did they do it at Clooney you know what was the day like how did the monks you know behave and what were meals like and you know what was the work that they did there was so much um influence and kind of imitation of what was going on at Clooney that you start to see the development of like groupings of monasteries around eastern France and even stretching into Italy that become essentially uh like affiliated with Clooney and and so we see the um the emergence of a kind of congregation of monasteries under the guidance of the abbot of Clooney within another few generations by like the middle of the 11th century the abbot of Clooney will be then in charge of appointing the new abbots at these sort of other monasteries um that were affiliated with with Clooney and so there's like one you know chief abbot that is in charge of appointing all the other abbots at the affiliated monasteries and this was a a, a new thing so this was this is an a, a kind of new arrangement new organizational style and it um you know maybe it doesn't seem like much to us now but again it's going to have a tremendous amount of influence because there was just a series of um very committed kind of charismatic and devoted abbots in the in the early generations at, at Clooney and you know they're now in a position to appoint you know men that they find just as committed to other monasteries across France and Italy um this this um you know really is going to have a lot of um a, a lot of uh, effects over time you know at first it, it was really about um again really about observing the rule and, and monastic life but over time Clooney became more and more kind of engaged in let's say the life of the church and and even the life of you know the towns where it um like the cities where the monasteries were were located just to give you an example um there was this uh i don't know practice if you will known as the truce of god where and Clooney plays a a a really you know sort of influential role here where um it's hard for us to, again to to think about this because uh we're just it's like a different a different society but in at this time let's say in the 11th century you know we're in the medieval period you know if you have some sense of like the feudal arrangement you know you had a very hierarchically structured society but you all and you had like a lot of you know kind of independent or semi-autonomous families that had their little their little um territory and you know the the nobility you know at different levels you know was was often kind of seeking to en- enlarge their their power what this meant in practice was you had a lot of um kind of petty uh 
I mean, wars is too strong, but like battles, like fighting amongst, um, you know, different nobility, like the families around different nobility. And it could be like extended families. We could be talking about, you know, big groups against other big uh, groups. And so the, the sort of situation, the social situation in, in Europe, you know, in the 11th century, let's say, was marked by a high, de- high, a very high degree of violence, um, in a way that, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's, it seems like there's a lot of violence around us as well, um, but in, in, of a different sort, I suppose. Um, but it, it was just, um, you know, a constant feature of life that, you know, various, various. Uh, families would be at war so to speak with each other so the truce of god was taken up and advanced um by you know the abbot at Cluny and then other affiliated monasteries to limit not eliminate but limit these battles if you will these these fights um between families which did result in death and, and killings so that in memory of christ's passion Every uh, Wednesday evening through Monday morning, there was supposed to be this so-called truce of God, um, Wednesday evening through Monday morning. And if anyone engaged in violence during that period, um, there would be sort of severe ecclesiastical punishments for violating this kind of holy decree. so, I mean, it did mean in practice that between Monday morning and Wednesday night, you know, it was okay. Like, you could fight. Um, it was not, you know, you, there wouldn't be these penalties attached. But, and again, to us, that might seem like maybe not, like, ultimately the, the greatest solution. But if you think about, you know, to go from a potential, you know, constant seven days a week to something like, you know, two and a half days or three days maybe this is a significant reduction in violence um i i mention it less because you know i think it had a you know tremendous impact on um you know this sort of social development of western europe during this time and more because it seems to have been a, a obeyed fairly regularly fairly consistently there seems to really have been a, a kind of respect among, um, you know, not just the nobility, but among sort of the secular society in general for um, Cluny, like, and for for the uh, the monasteries affiliated with Cluny. From from this point on, um, not from this point, I should say, but like, as it's expanding, its influence is expanding it becomes sort of a movement, if you will, that's a little bit more um, outspoken, I think, in terms of reform, reforms for the church as a whole. So, you know, it's kind of like we've, we've you know, tried to get our own houses in order um, and and have found that it's, it's very successful and very good. And, and they become very interested over time in sort of the, the improvement of clerical life in general. And so the two issues that they become, you know, very involved with, and, and this will last for a couple hundred years in, in a way, 
um, are, well, I mentioned them kind of at the, a couple, a little bit ago, the, the issue of simony, you know, the, the sale or purchase of um, ecclesial office, as well as, you know, the sort of um, widespread and um, at times, you know, really rampant sexual immorality among the clergy. And so they pushed for, um, you know, a, a, an increased sort of commitment, if you will, to clerical celibacy and overall a, a desire to, um, you know, re renew the, the clergy across the board within the church. The, again, the impact of this is that a number of the great sort of reformers that will rise to prominence in the church in the 11th century and the 12th century will have some connection to either to Cluny, the, the monastery in France, or to this sort of movement as a whole. Um, sometimes this movement is called the Cluniac Reform, Cluniac being you know, the adjectival um, form here. But I think it really is, you know, the case, and it's it's important, and, and maybe, um, you know, the, the kind of thing that that can easily be overlooked, that a kind of simple, a simple beginning, you know, but a, a real commitment to um, to reform and to sort of the pious observance of, of the rule of Benedict. Uh, you know, it, 200 years later is going to be ultimately connected to, um, you know, a great reforming zeal within the church. And so, um, you know, these, these, a lot of times, you know, sort of, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, where did these movements for, for great change come from? Um, and in this case, you know, where we're going to return to now with, uh, the story of the 11th century, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that a lot of these reformers came out of these um, religious the reforms in religious life, especially um, with the, the Clooney reforms. All right, let me pause there. Any any questions? Anything I need to clarify? I can't see everybody's screen. I have a question. Just kind of in general, as we're talking. I meant to ask this last time we had class, but how does kind of the idea of succession work when we have like three posts at the same time and all this paying people off? I don't know. I just feel like I just wonder how that works. Yeah. Um, you know, and we'll see this again when we talk about the, the, um, not the East-West schism, but the Great Schism, which is another another scenario where we get three popes at once. Um, and, and I would say this wasn't something that, in in their own eras, you know, they they made as much of a sort of lofty theological argument about. I mean, if if anything, it was simply like, who was the rightful. Um, candidate that was chosen in whatever way by by the 
um, the church in Rome. We'll actually kind of get to this question um, fairly shortly because there are going to be some reforms among these reforming acts that we'll see. Um, there will be some reforms of the uh, of the um, the process for papal election, and so you know, I, I would say, looking back on it, sort of it from from you know beyond the the church has maintained, and and even through some very kind of sticky situations, has maintained kind of the line. Uh, the the line of, of succession from from Saint Peter to you know Pope Francis, um, but recognize that in, in some eras it was harder to see you know who the rightful successor was, um, and there's a really good example of this with the great schism that that I, I like to point out. So I don't want to spoil that, but um, one thing I will share, for example, is when we're just to give you a sense. So in um, when we get to the Great Schism in the in the 14th uh, the 15th century, uh, early 1400s, it's resolved by you know roughly by uh, 1438 or something like that. Um, one of the popes of one of the there's three lines. There's the, the Roman line, the Avignon line, and then, as we'll see, the Pisa line from Pisa, the city of Pisa. And one of the popes in the other lines, not the Roman line, is is John, Pope John. And when he's counting the numbers, um, he takes, he, you know, he comes after John the 22nd, so he takes number 23. And so... In the aftermath, looking back, you know, hundreds of years later, um, you know, there was sort of clarity around the Roman line was considered the legitimate line, and therefore John the Twenty-Third was, you know, an anti-pope or sort of a non-pope. But in 1958, when Angelo Roncalli was elected pope, um, he wanted to take the name John. And there was really a kind of extended pause and, and discussion around which number he should be, because there had been a John the Twenty Third already. He was later deemed to sort of not be um, the real one, and so they said, "Well, the other John the Twenty Third wasn't a real pope, so therefore you should take twenty three as your number." I'm telling you that story only to say. It's just a kind of, there are eras that are just messy that way. There's one Pope, and, and this is the sort of teaser, if you will, that, that I'll, I'll show you. There's one Pope where there is a number skip. In other words, in the official Roman line, we skip a number because it was one of the Popes that was sort of deemed after the fact to not be the real Pope. Um, and so even though I'm talking about a, an era that's, you know, 300 years or two or so away from where we are now, it's a similar kind of, I think about it at least in a similar kind of way, which is, you know, the, the history of the papacy, especially up until, you know, at least the 16th century, but really more like the 18th or 19th century, was much less of a sort of 
centralized head of this global church and it was much more like a, a sort of um like its actual functioning was much more like just like an, any other italian diocese let's say it just so happened that you know it had the the tradition and 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 over time sort of developed a, a real authority by being the see of of peter um and so you know it's not the case that you know in the first thousand or even 1500 years um the you know the succession from one bishop of rome to the next was always a sort of um neat and clear process as i you know as we're saying it's it was often you know messy and contested and sometimes honestly left to future generations to sort of sort through and figure out um you know during the great schism again just because it's easier to illustrate this with that period you know there's there are stories of priests praying the eucharistic prayer and, and when they get to the intention for the holy father and they say something like you know we, we pray for the pope whoever he may be um in, in other words there just wasn't certainty there were saints on both sides of the issue and during these great periods of of schism and so um you know as a historical matter i would say you know is is often very messy as a more like a sort of theological matter you know in time the, the church has come to understand you know where sort of the legitimate succession took place um but often after a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity Hope that answers your question. Oh, quick no, question. Jim, go ahead. Yeah, the simony, does that include the sale of indul indulgences, not just the uh, pastoral yes. or, or the of course uh, it does. ecclesiastical offices, right? But it also was indulgent. Yeah, I, I mean, it's going. the sale of indulgences is going to become, it's, it's going to take on a life of its own. Um, um, you know, in the four, 15th and 16th centuries, but it's it's a similar kind of it's a similar kind of understanding. I mean, generally when we talk about simony, we mean more specifically like either the purchase and or sale of ecclesial um, offices or or the sacraments. Indulgences don't you know don't technically fall into that, but it's the same basic spirit, which is uh, you know a spiritual good that has some you know that carries with it God's grace, which grace by definition is, you know, supposed to be free, um, is exchanged at a price, you know, that's, that's what's being prohibited. So, and indulgences will kind of come up, you know, through a, a somewhat separate tradition, if you will, which we'll talk about, but I think it's fair to kind of see them in, in the same vein as, as this sort of, uh, you know, so you know a, a bishop, a bishop's office. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thank you. Excellent. So, um, all of that is to say, we're back now to Leo the Ninth, our friend Pope Leo the Ninth, ten forty nine, who was, um, you know, more or less, um, more or less elected Pope as a result of the influence of the Holy Roman Emperor uh, Henry the Third. Leo the Ninth was a, a very much committed to 
um, reform. You know, he was familiar with sort of the Clooney ideals and, you know, saw his role as being a, a real reformer of the papacy. And um, he, he takes a number of steps. I mean, I think I, I give you some, some of these on your outline um, that, you know, are characteristic of this uh, of his papacy and his desire to reform. The first and, and, you know, arguably, again, the most consequential was um, he undertakes a pretty significant reform or overhaul of the cardinalate, which is to say how, you know, the, the group of advisors around the Pope who are, who are cardinals. Um, when Leo IX gets there, uh, he, he, um, he, um, and I should say, um, Leo the Ninth was not from Rome. He, he came to Rome kind of at the behest of Henry the Third. He was the bishop of a, you know, relatively small diocese in, in the Holy Roman Empire. Um, again, but Henry the Third sort of had had um, selected him because he was known to him, known to be a reformer. So he's an outsider, Leo the Ninth, and he gets to Rome and he finds, um, you know, all of the cardinals basically um, are not just Italians, right, but are Romans. So the the the, the body of advisors um, who held, you know titles of honor and, and influence in the church were all Romans, even though the Pope, you know, didn't have to be elected from Rome. He could be from, from other areas, as evidenced by, you know, Leo the Ninth himself. And so, you know, as there's a sense that, yes, this is the, the Bishop of Rome specifically, but, you know, the Pope also occupies a more sort of broad ranging uh, exercise of authority, there's a sense that um, the cardinals need to reflect, uh, you know, that wider reach of the papacy and also need to be drawn from, you know, a, a selection pool that's, that's deeper than, you know, just the group of different familial candidates who are all rivals with each other in the city of Rome. And so Leo the Nine, um, you know, changes the composition by appointing, and it's just so they sort of serve at the pleasure of, at this time, served at the pleasure of the Pope. And so Leo the Nine just starts making a number of sort of new cardinals to um, dilute the influence of the Romans. And a, a number of these men, I, I mean, we could actually say more about several of the cardinals he appointed, um, because in their own right, they're they're important figures in church history. But the one, you know, who's tremendously important is um, Hildebrand. We'll see. Uh, you know, eventually himself is going to become, you know, one of the great reforming popes of not just the Middle Ages, but but in church history, Gregory the Seventh. Um, and, and Leo the Ninth brings uh, Hildebrand to Rome. He brings a number of other um, 
you know, very reform-oriented cardinals to Rome. This is, by the way, a sort of, we see echoes of this several more times in church history um, when there's a sense of either stagnation or corruption or whatever, some problems with the papacy. You know, Leo IX is really the first to do this, but several others will follow in his footsteps. And I think you can make a pretty good case. I mean, I'm always a little bit hesitant because I can't say this as a historian because it's not really history yet. Um, but my sense is that Francis has done something very similar, um, which is, you know, try to broaden the the um, the the pool of of cardinals, if you will, and, and get different uh, different perspectives, not just the same kind of you know, maybe ideologically aligned groups of people in. And so in, in Leo IX's case in the 11th century, it was it was less about, you know, theological matters and more just about like which family you were a member of in Rome and, and how those alliances played out. Um, but we'll see this again during the time of the Protestant Reformation where, um, you know, one of the popes after the Reformation breaks out does something very, very similar to this. He expands the number of cardinals brings in some new ones um, from outside of Italy. And again, I, I, think, I, I think Francis is you know, trying to do something similar by the way he's creating new cardinals from you know, all over uh, the world, basically, places that have never had a cardinal before. So, um, you know, I don't want to dwell on that, but I, I'd offer that as a kind of pattern that we'll see repeated. Uh, Leo IX also does other things to, um, to try and foster reform across the church. This includes uh, a tremendous amount of traveling. Um, so he takes trips across um, not just Italy, but you know, modern day the, the Holy Roman Empire, modern day Germany and France, where he convenes under his own authority as pope. He convenes regional synods. So he shows up in, you know, um, in uh, Bavaria, let's say, in the Holy Roman Empire, and you know, notices that things are, or, or has gotten word prior to going there, that things are stagnant, you know, maybe the bishop is a little bit corrupt or whatever, so, you know, the problem is you can't, you know, you can't necessarily count on um, a corrupt or lax bishop to police himself, and so instead of waiting for that, you know, he would just go and convene a synod in Bavaria and, you know, under his authority, a number of reforms would be passed, and, and so he does this all over, you know, Again, mostly Germany, France, and Italy. In 1049 as well, he holds a synod in Rome uh, where he condemns both simony and priestly marriage. He also, um, he also at a different synod, um, affirms the principle, and uh, it's important to just state this term because it's a little unusual, um, but we're going to come back to it here shortly. He also affirms the principle of what's called canonical election. And that's the idea that um, the bishop of a diocese should be chosen um, by the, you know, sort of by, first by the clergy and then by the, the people as well. And, and so this was 
you know, connected to his his reforms against simony and will also have, you know, really important consequences for even, um, you know, generations to come in, in a controversy that we'll see. But the point was, uh, this process of canonical election, which is to say, normally the clergy would meet and kind of vote, and then the choice would be presented to the people who, in theory, had some some role to play, but in practice, we think, had very little role. It was really the clergy who chose um, the next bishop, by and large, um, and the people kind of affirmed it, if you will. But this process was being sort of circumvented or short-circuited or ignored in some cases um, because, you know, people were, you know, purchasing um, the office or, or um, you know, in other ways, it was just not be this process of the canonical election, which dates back to the, to the early church, was not being followed. And so Leo the Ninth um, affirms this and says, "Look, this always has to be the process, whereby one is made bishop." I mean, a deeply ironic thing about this is it's pretty doubtful, given the influence of Henry the Third, that that um, you know Leo the Ninth himself wasn't ultimately made pope by by the type of process he's envisioning. Um, you know, all all the other places should. Uh, following, nevertheless, it's it's sort of uh, an important reform that's uh, you know trying to remedy some of these abuses around you know how bishops were made. Um, so while he while he um, Leo the Ninth does a number of you know uh, sort of important things, you know, issued a number of decrees around these types of reforms to clean up the. The behavior of uh, of the clergy and and you know, kind of reforms of cardinals. Um, you know, he's obviously the pope during uh, a, a very unfortunate, uh, I think, from everyone's perspective now, certainly, um, uh, you know, breaking apart of the Eastern and Western churches. And so, at least in, on this front, I, I think you know we we have to see. Um, Leo the Ninth's pontificate as, um, you know, really having a, a significant sort of unfortunate um, twist to it. So, I mean, I think everyone knows that the, the two churches kind of drift apart in 1054, but, uh, you know, and I mentioned the occasion schism that happened, you know, several centuries prior, just uh, as a Precursor, I, I mentioned on your outline, um, this this um, conflict between uh, on, in the east a guy called Photius, and in the in the west um, Ignatius. Photius was or Photius, I mean I've heard it pronounced both ways, was the patriarch of Constantinople, which is like you know again the key leader of the the Eastern Church, um, and. So he was the, the patriarch of Constantinople, and in the year 867, he um, holds a, 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 not a general council, but like a synod essentially, in Constantinople, where he um, condemns the Western Church for heresy. And the heresy that he, uh, there's two main heresies that he condemned the Western Church for committing. The first is 
um, the first is on the authority of the papacy, that that in the West they hold a a heretical view, a deficient not just deficient but heretical view, that the Pope has authority sort of over and above other bishops in the Church. Bodius's view, the Eastern view, was more like uh, primus inter pares, where the the Pope was the first among equals, um, but not that he had additional sort of authority above the Patriarch of Constantinople, let's say. So that's that's number one. The other um, the other matter of the heresy, if you will, according to Bodhi. Oh, I botched that. Ignore that. Can I delete something I typed in there? Sorry about that. Filioque is what I'm going for. Filioque. Um, so this is, and I mean, again, I'm probably in your other classes and stuff, you're, you're very familiar with this, but this is the sort of addition to the creed of Nicaea and Chalcedon or Nicaea and Constantinople, I should say, that we stay as the Nicene Creed, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Filioque means uh, and the Son. And the, if you remember when we looked at the Council of Nicaea and then, you know, followed it up with Constantinople, it's not in there. Um, it just it says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. But it doesn't say, it, it's, just, it's just silent, right? It doesn't go any further than that. You know, there are some, you know, different, not theories, but some different sort of dating of the, like when the, the addition of the word filioque um, entered into common usage. Um, certainly, uh, well, in, in some cases, like the, the very early period takes it back to like the sixth century, but certainly by the time of Charlemagne, ninth century, um, it's in wide use in in the West, and Charlemagne himself was very supportive of this. Um, in fact, in one of the sort of councils or synods, I should say, during Charlemagne's reign, you know, they sort of they specifically added filioque to to the creed as you know a helpful um, kind of clarification. But this was all really taking place in the West. And so in the East, they saw this as a kind of, you know, improper tinkering with the creed that had been decided by these general councils in the fourth century. And so, um, uh, so Photius uh, condemns the West for heresy and uh, declares the Pope anathema, excommunicated and deposed which is a nice trifecta, to be honest with you. Like, if you're going to go down, you want to go down with all three. You know, Be declared anathema, get excommunicated, and be deposed. I think just being excommunicated, for example, I mean, that's kind of weak sauce as far as I'm concerned. I don't know. Just seeing if anyone's still awake. Um, so, uh, you know, look, when this happens, when one side does this to sort of the other, the reaction is is very predictable. Um, you know, the Pope at the time, a guy called Nicholas, uh, responds, um, you know, pretty pretty strongly, um, and condemns 
in, in, in response, condemns Photius as, as the Patriarch of Constantinople. Uh, there is a sort of uh, truce, if you will, that it, it is brought about in uh, about 10 years, after about 10 years in 879, um, where both sides kind of agreed to to basically drop the condemnations and not not force the issue, if you will. Um, so Photius kind of withdraws his excommunication of Pope Nicholas and Pope sort of does likewise. Um, but there there is no real like resolution other than the kind of lifting of the penalties, which ends the schism. Um, oh, so sometimes. Sorry, I should. I meant to put this in. So sometimes this whole event is called the, the Photian or Photian schism, um, after Photius' name. But you know, it's one of these things. It's similar to uh, what we saw earlier with Acacius, where you see East and West. You see this kind of theological argument flaring up, kind of boiling over, and there's not a a ready resolution at hand. And so what they do is kind of just agree. They don't agree to disagree. They just agree to kind of take back the nasty things they said and like, let's not talk about it for now, which, um, you know, doesn't work uh, over the long term. Um, and so, uh, you know, I say that this whole event with, with Photius is a precursor because, um, you know, the issues were never resolved. Like the issue of papal authority over and against the Patriarch of Constantinople was not resolved at the end, by the, by the end of the, the ninth century. The issue of the filioque and the creed was not resolved. So East and West moved forward united, if you will, unified, um, you know, by the end of the 800s, but not, not in a, a sort of really compelling way or convincing way because there were clear differences. And rather than, you know, come to some resolution, if you will, they both agreed to um, sort of drop it, um, just to not comment on it, um, and to move forward, you know, on, on their own. Uh, that again holds up for about another um, almost 200 years, not quite, um, where things uh, once again reach a kind of boiling point under the between the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Pope at this time. With Pope Leo the Ninth in um, in 1054, and so um, the the, um, the the issues in this um, sort of East-West schism, if you will, and and the sorry, I give, I give you his name on the outline, but let me just type it in here. Patriarch of Constantinople is a guy called Michael Carolarius. Michael Carolarius was um, a really kind of strong leader. Like he was had good relationships with the emperor in Constantinople, but was also very assertive in his own right. And probably, in some ways, it's possible that the combination of personalities—you know, a very strong patriarch of Constantinople, strong-willed, with again a very strong-willed Leo the Ninth—it's possible that you know, their, their own personalities kind of 
fed into um, fed into this um, this incident. And the flashpoint was about um, Sicily, um, if, if you know, if you can believe it. Um, so Sicily, you know, that little island off of southern Italy, um, was kind of a contested territory in terms of who had authority over it. But by and large, and for the vast majority of its its history, the uh, the island of Sicily really belonged to the east. I mean, we think of Sicily as part of Italy. It is today. Um, but historically, it, it was much more a possession of um, sort of the Greek em- the Greek half of the empire, sort of the, or the, um, you know, the Byzantine part of the, the empire and, and the east. And so technically speaking, the Patriarch of Constantinople you know, historically at least, had um, uh, authority over Sicily, over the churches in Sicily. Um, and under Leo the Ninth, sort of this reforming zeal was kind of in, in the air and moving, and Leo the Ninth was traveling all over the place. And uh, it wasn't Leo specifically, but there was a sense that the, the, the Pope was, you know, starting to interfere in um, church affairs, not just across Italy, but even extending to Sicily. And when the Patriarch of Constantinople gets word of this, Michael Carolarius, uh, he gets very angry and closes all of the sort of Latin Rite churches in Sicily. He orders them closed. So at this time, you know, you have a situation where you have both. So you have the sort of Western you know, Catholic, if you will, churches that had mass in latin and then you but you also had eastern that, that would have had it in um in greek and so um the, the patriarch of constantinople is angry that the pope he see, he thinks is interfering in sicily so he orders the the latin churches closed and in doing so he issues this very sort of explosive letter condemning the Pope's interference and then reviving basically all of the same kinds of theological charges that had been leveled in previous, uh, previous conflicts, the filioque, the, um, um, the authority of the Pope. And then one other one that I don't think I mentioned, uh, well, I didn't mention it because it hadn't come up until more like the ninth century, but another difference between East and West, you probably know, um, that, that had to do with the liturgy was that the practice developed in the West, certainly by the ninth century, but, but maybe possibly even a little bit earlier of using, of only using unleavened bread um, for the Eucharist. And in the East, they, they did not change. The, the custom, you know, had been that it was, um, you know, acceptable to use leavened bread, and so they did. And so again, the East sees the West as kind of innovative and making, innovating and making changes that they, they should, they're, they're not really allowed to make. Um, and so Michael Carolarius writes this scathing attack on, on the Pope and the, the Western Church, um, you know, for adding filioque, for using unleavened bread, for claiming authority for the Pope where he doesn't have it, and, and on and on. Leo IX at first, 
you know, tries to achieve a diplomatic solution. He sends um, two of his very top cardinals to um, Constantinople to um, try and resolve this. Um, but he also equips them, should they be unsuccessful, with a bull of excommunication, which is uh, exactly how this plays out. So they go to Constantinople, um, are unsuccessful in you know, getting an agreement with the patriarch. And so in 1054, they lay this bull of excommunication, the Pope excommunicating the patriarch of Constantinople on the high altar of Hagia Sophia. And in fairly short order, also in 1054, Patriarch of Constantinople returns the favor by excommunicating Leo the Ninth. And um, at that point, uh, you know, the Eastern and Western churches, you know, are, are now in a sort of state of separation, which will last, I mean, which will last until today, right? There are, a, are going to be a couple moments where the reunion is briefly, very briefly achieved, um, but not in a sustainable way, not in a way that ever resolved the underlying kind of theological issues. Um, but there were certainly, you know, there were theological issues, there were kind of political issues that play out in various eras that prevent East and West from, um, you know, potentially being able to reconcile. And it wasn't until, uh, well, I, I don't know if now it was in the 1960s or 1970s, but it was during Paul VI's reign, I think it was in the 60s, maybe 68 or 69, that the excommunications were lifted. Um, and there's a famous image of Paul VI and the Patriarch of Constantinople at the time for embracing. Um, again, not that that accomplished reunion, because by this point, you know, there has been a lot of sort of doctrinal uh, definitions or whatever that have sort of widened the chasm between East and West. Um, but as a gesture of unity and, you know, working towards reunion, again, uh, under Paul VI, uh, they, there was a mutual lifting of the excommunication that had been in place for, uh, you know, 900 years. So that's the East-West schism. Um, Leo IX, again, had a tremendous role in kind of advancing some of the reforming causes in the West, but certainly in this way, um, you know, he was unsuccessful in navigating the, um, you know, the, the main, maintaining of, of unity with, with the, the uh, certainly, you know, pivotal moment in church history as what had been one Christian church. Um, you know, there obviously had been some small breakaway sects and, and this kind of thing, but what had been otherwise essentially one Christian church for the first millennia, millennium of existence, um, you know, splits apart into two. And, you know, obviously will remain that way for about 500 more years until it splits apart into several more and, and so on and so on. So, um, pretty, obviously pretty pivotal moment. Any questions about the other ninth of the East-West schism? Paul? Yeah, I, I'm just looking at um, the, the notes that, that you had originally given. And if we go back to the beginning where you were talking about <clears throat> uh, uh, Photius in the East, your notes indicate Photius against Ignatius, but you, have, you didn't mention anything about Ignatius tonight. Oh, yeah. 
So Ignatius was a um, good, good, um, yeah, good point. Ignatius was, uh, I'm trying to remember where he was the bishop of now. It wasn't the, the he wasn't the pope, but he was a Western uh, bishop. Uh, surprised I don't, oh, I should have it in my notes, and I was just kind of skipping over it, but um I could probably look it up over the break and let you know who, where exactly he was the bishop. But yeah, no, I mean he just represented sort of one of the opponents. You also mentioned. Oh wait, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, so no, Ignatius was. Sorry, I do have it in my notes. It's just not clearly delineated. So Ignatius was made uh, so Photius after this sort of excommunication um, and 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 um, uh, you know deposing of the Pope then the, the West imposed sanctions on the Patriarch of Constantinople Photius and for a time um, he actually was removed um, the, the emperor and, and Byz the Byzantine emperor, uh, you know, was kind of angry at Photius for other reasons. And so he supported the removal of Photius, at which point he was replaced by Ignatius as his, sort of the successor as the, the patriarch of Constantinople. But then, um, you know, Photius wound up, um, sort of taking back the, the the sea um and, and and at a later moment in time as this was being resolved ignatius was actually deposed um you know in constantinople and replaced by photius so they were kind of trading trading seats if you will but yeah that's that's who ignatius was and who was the individual that was sent by the west to constantinople that you mentioned you mentioned i think i missed that um, you mean with Leo the Ninth? Yeah. So there are two, and uh, I mean, if, if you're if you're interested, you, there's again more we could say about each of them. Cardinal Humbert was one of the great reforming cardinals, and then um, Frederick of Lorraine, who was the sort of uh, Leo the Ninth had brought him in as the the papal chancellor. Uh, I don't know. In that time, it meant something slightly different, but the chancellor is kind of like, you know, the chief administrator of of the papacy. But both of these men, both Cardinal Humbert and, and Frederick of Lorraine, were, you know, very effective and, again, important in their own right. Um, and and um, so he really sent, you know, some of his top, uh, his top people. Uh, you know, Humbert was a, a monk in France, um, but wound up sort of ha had developed kind of reputation as being among the most sort of pious and devout and holy men in, you know, in, in the country, if you will. And, and, um, you know, bringing this, this sort of humble monk to, to Rome, to be a cardinal turned out to be, you know, just a great appointment. And he, you know, Humbert, uh, was a, a, um, you know, a leading voice in a lot of these reform efforts that Leo the Ninth was engaged with and, and did a lot of, uh, and also worked with uh, Hildebrand, as we'll see Gregory the Seventh 
And so, you know, these were really top, top, uh, you know, figures that he sent, and they just weren't able to, you know, come to any resolution. And so they had instructions in the event that, you know, you're not able to, you know, resolve these issues, that, that this is the decision and, and you should, um, you know, place the place the bull on the, the altar of the cathedral so as to uh, affect its, its um, you know, declaration. Excellent. Any other question? Let's, uh, we're at a, at, a, at a good stopping point. So we'll, we'll turn next to um, not Leo IX's immediate successor, but in some ways his, um, you know, the next sort of really key figure in the reforming era, which is Gregory VII, also known as Hildebrand. Um, and we'll see how he sort of uh, continues this reforming movement. So let's, uh, 816, so let's take, um, I said let's, uh, and the Amazon device with female name just sort of started beeping at me. Um, she who shall not be named. Um, let's take a break and come back at 831. Uh, you know, the two representatives. And so I mentioned Cardinal Humbert and then Frederick of um, Lorraine. And there was actually, um, so after Leo IX's death, there was a, a, another guy who was elected and he didn't last very long, you know, not due to any foul play, he just died kind of unexpectedly. And after after that, actually, um, Frederick of Lorraine was elected Pope and took the name Stephen IX. Again, another reformer um, where Cardinal Humbert and then uh, also Hildebrand uh, were were key advisors. Um, one of the the really important actions of one of the really important actions of um, Stephen the Ninth was the declaration of um, or the pro prohibition, I should say, of uh, lay investiture, which he. Sure. which is a key concept uh, that will lead to something called the investiture controversy, which we're, you know, kind of about to talk about. And lay investiture has to do with a, a system that we don't understand in our, you know, in our modern era very well, because the church is set up very, very differently. But in some, uh, but this really pertained mostly to the Holy Roman Empire. Um, they had a kind of division of the empire into a, a number of smaller units. I wouldn't call them states exactly, something closer to regions, but they were broken down in such a way that um, the leader of each of these, at one point it was five, at one point it was six, and that generally settled into around seven of these. At one point, the uh, I'm sorry, the leader of these sort of regions within the Holy Roman Empire were addressed as prince, you know, like that was the title, like sort of political title, yeah, they were a prince so-and-so, but they were also bishops. So we have the emergence 
during the Holy Roman Empire of the um, <clears throat> sort of sometimes you'll see this like in somebody's name like the Prince Bishop a lot of times they, they don't even say that but it was like a dual appointment where just like the Pope himself was the leader of the Papal States as a kind of political leader these I mean look the closest analog is kind of like a governor uh, of a state today I mean it's not a perfect analogy but it's, it's you know the closest thing we have um, and I mean that look there's an, an Andrew Cuomo as Bishop joke just sitting right there and I'm just gonna let it go so I'm gonna keep moving um, but I do want to know I want you all to know I see it like I see it right there and you know I'm really tempted uh, it's the Easter season Christ is risen and so I'm gonna move on um, and so the Prince Bishop was you know essentially the leader of you know again for most of its history there were seven of these in the Holy Roman Empire and um, as you can imagine the you know there was a lot of importance attached to who kind of got to make this decision and so again according to the principle that we mentioned before the break of canonical election any bishop should be um, any bishop should be chosen by this process of canonical election, whereby the clergy and the people, um, you know, select, essentially elect the, the bishop. Um, in practice, especially in places like the Holy Roman Empire, the, um, the emperor himself, the Holy Roman Emperor himself would often, you know, if not um, in practice, uh, yeah, if not in, in sort of in theory, in practice, he would be the one who made the decision. And as part of this whole process, there was a um, there was a sort of you know a, a sort of installation ceremony or whatever. And this installation uh, into like becoming a bishop, but also becoming you know, prince and bishop, um, you know, was really heavily laden with symbolism that that was tremendously important. And at one point, um, th there was a, a sort of a part of the the ceremony, if you will, where the emperor would give a ring and a st and the staff to the elected bishop as sort of to uh, uh, you know as sort of tokens of his induction into the office. And in other words, he would sort of invest or vest the the new bishop with the ring and the staff. And so um, the ring and the staff, you know, are religious symbols. They're, they're symbols of the um, spiritual authority uh, over the sort of the church, the diocese in that region for the bishop. You know, the ring obviously was sort of the fisherman's ring, the bishop's wear. And then, you know, I mean, we would, I guess, call it a crozier, not a staff, but, you know, same, same idea. So the principle or the idea around lay investiture was that these items were being given by the emperor, a, a layman, to these bishops who would then exert spiritual authority. So you had a situation where, and, and again, there was a tremendous amount of not just like, hey, this is a nice gift that the emperor's given, but actually like there's real symbolic 
sort of a, a sort of representation of the bestowal of authority in place. And so the problem was, and the reason that Stephen the Ninth banned it, and, and this is going to you know lead to a controversy, if you will, a struggle between church and state, that that the emperor, as a layperson, yes, he he enjoys certain authority, political authority, kind of we might call it secular authority. But they could find no grounds, and they thought it was totally sort of an abuse or a, an excess uh, sort of use of, of the emperor's power to think that the emperor, that there could be such a thing as lay investiture, whereby the emperor would be the one who sort of um, bestows upon the bishop the, these symbols of his spiritual authority. So that's that's the sort of that's going to be, I should say, the um, the issue that 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 arise that continues to arise, and when we see the first prohibition of this um, outright with Stephen the Ninth, um, again we'll come we'll come back to invested lay investiture here in, in a few minutes. Um, so after Stephen the Ninth. There was another reform pope before Gregory the Seventh, whose um, whose name was Nicholas the Second. Nicholas the Second, um, again, was sort of his his prime minister, if you want to think about it this way. Was was Hildebrand? Was Gregory the Seventh? Well, future Gregory the Seventh. Um, you know, it was thought that Hildebrand wrote most of the documents, along with Cardinal Humbert. Um, under for Nicholas II during his pontificate. So we see um, another condemnation or, or you know restriction on lay investiture under any circumstances with uh, Nicholas II in 1059, but also a very uh, important decree in 1059 um, to reform papal elections. 1059, uh, a document was... Um, issued as a result of a synod in Rome, which set forth the process for electing the Pope. What's really interesting, um, I mean, I guess kind of interesting, a little bit like a, a trivia, if you will, is that this this document that was issued in 1059, yeah. in a sort of technical way, still governs the the, the process for the election of Pope today. Now, it's been revised about, I don't know how many times, I mean, somebody has probably actually studied this or tracked how many changes. I mean, there's, there, it's quite different, but it's every time they adjust the rules, or like, oh, this many cardinals can vote, or, you know, this is how it's going to work, or, you know, white smoke, gray smoke, that kind of thing. Uh, they adjust this, this constitution, if you will, this sort of process document that was issued under Nicholas II in 1059. So it's you know, kind of impressive. It's almost going to be a thousand years old here before long. Um, at the time, though, um, at the time, though, this was an important document to kind of refine the process of canonical election in the specific case of the Bishop of Rome. Um, the goal was to break away from know the kind of factionalism that we had seen or that they had seen you know in the previous centuries um you know where rival families you know were sort of fighting over who would be pope and instead 
this really shifted the in light of Leo the Ninth's reform of the Cardinal Eight, this document really shifts the burden, not burden, the responsibility of election onto the cardinals as a body, sort of over and above the clergy and the people of the city of Rome. So it really shifts the sort of key responsibility for choosing Pope um, away from you know the usual canonical election practice of uh, the clergy then the people to a more narrowly defined group, namely the cardinals. And so um, they become the, the group that's tasked with making the, um, you know, that with electing the, the next bishop of Rome when, when there's a, a vacancy. So on the death of a pope, the cardinals will meet, you know, with each other. And then after they make a decision, then the cardinals kind of, at least in theory, um, follow the practice of canonical election, which is to say that they then um, bring their choice to the clergy and the people of Rome sort of for their input, if you will. Um, again, this was often more, um, I don't know, style over substance or something. Like it wasn't that they were really necessarily um, open to being having their minds changed. It was more like respecting the process that had originated um, from the early church. And so, the, you know, the cardinals would decide and then would sort of inform the clergy of Rome and, and the people. Um, the document itself also um, has very, I think, purposely vague language about protecting the, quote, honor and reverence due to our beloved son, Henry, closed quote, which at this time meant um, the new Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV. Um, so they, they kind of are, are nodding in the direction of this controversy of lay investiture. And so it, it mentions the honor and reverence due to the emperor, but it doesn't say that the emperor is going to be consulted, that the emperor can veto it, that the emperor can do anything. Um, keep in mind though, just again, to, to go back to where we ended last time, it was the emperors who you know, kind of in, in many ways were instrumental in dragging the Pope out of the, the mess that it was in, in the, you know, in the 10th century. And so now the reforming impulse has kind of taken over the church and the reliance on the state, the emperor to kind of monitor um, the selection of Pope to make sure it's not, you know, this kind of, kind of corrupt mafia style thing. Now the reforming party, if you will, within the church has has concluded that the, the imperial interference is something that needs to be protected against. So in the course of about a, you know, a century or so, it, it's really kind of the pendulum has swung now back in the other direction. And so they, they acknowledge the emperor as, you know, having, you know, appropriate uh, reverence due to him, but don't give him any any uh, role in in this process. The document further um, mentions that the Pope can come from anywhere in the church, which is to say it doesn't have to be a Roman, um, that the election can be held elsewhere than the city of Rome in cases of necessity, um, which speaks to an increasing problem that we're going to see 
you know, how it impacts things moving forward, which is that there's a lot of social instability in the city of Rome in the in the Middle Ages, in the late Middle Ages, and, and there's kind of a decay that takes place that the, the part of the reason that the Pope is, the Popes are going to leave Rome and, and set up shop in Avignon, um, but also at other times, you know, even when the papacy doesn't sort of move its whole operation, you see Popes out of Rome for years at a time, um, in part because the, um, you know, the city just becomes very unsafe, um, you know, for, for several generations. And so the election doesn't have to be in Rome. The Pope can come from anywhere. And that the, the final aspect was that the Pope possesses the powers of his office immediately on, upon his acceptance of the election, whether or not he, you know, he doesn't, in other words, he doesn't have to go to Rome and be installed as Pope before he can exercise power. So it's almost like it's it's kind of remarkable in a way because they're anticipating some of the challenges that will actually face the church in, in coming centuries around you know difficult papal elections and angry Roman mobs and, and things like this and they set up a process whereby not only can they hold the election outside of Rome but it's clear according to the sort of the, the guidance of the law the sort of church law that the, the Pope assumes his power um, immediately upon election that he doesn't have to you know, go to Rome in order to sort of become Pope and exercise his power as Pope. Um, and again, so this, this reforming document, reforming decree, um, is just another step in, in the reform movement trying to protect against some of the problems that they had in previous generation. Um, so the, the, um, the stage is set uh, after Alexander II for um, the, the um, rise into the papacy, uh, you know, upon his death. Uh, well, actually, there was somebody who served a very short time after uh, Alexander and before Gregory, but Hildebrand becomes Pope. Um, and uh, takes the name Gregory the Seventh. It's what's fascinating about um, what's fascinating about um, Gregory the Seventh's election. And sometimes, by the way, I mean I'm using the names interchangeably. And it's just sort of habit. And so you'll see this if you're, I don't want to say if, when you're reading church history, kind of at nights and weekends, I just assume after this class, that'll be all you basically read. Um, when you're reading church history, you'll, you'll see Hildebrand, sometimes like Pope Hildebrand or whatever, that's his their given name, but his papal name is, is Gregory VII. Um, so he becomes Pope. Uh, ironically, it, it seems like he, I mean, he was very influential. He'd been in Rome for, for many years by this point, about 25 years by this point, um, in, in 10, uh, 1074, is it? Um, yeah, 1074, right? But I have the dates in there somewhere, don't I? 1073, I'm sorry. Um, so 
he becomes Pope by something like popular acclamation, which is ironic, because it seems like, you know, this reforming decree about how the popes should be chosen, um, that Gregory VII almost certainly had a hand in drafting. It seems very likely that um, the cardinals just sort of ratified this this decision that the people had been you know, clamoring for Hildebrand to become pope. And so he takes the name Gregory VII and immediately uh, sets about, he's, he's crown pope in, um, I don't know if, you, if you've been to Rome, the church of St. Peter in Chains, which is, which is a really cool church. Um, he's, he's crown pope there and immediately um, sets about with sort of the um, continued reform of the church. He knows that the key sort of the key challenge that he's facing is with the new um, the new Holy Roman Emperor who's the son of Henry the third Henry the fourth there was a period where between Henry the third's death where uh, I can't remember now Henry the fourth was less than 10 years old if I'm not mistaken um, when Henry the third died so there was a period where you know, later on, this will be called like the Regency period, where Henry the Fourth is too young to assume um, the title of emperor, but he's you know he's the next in line, and so there's sort of like a council that runs the Holy Roman Empire, and uh, maybe unsurprisingly during that period, you know, there, there's sort of a, a weakness uh, to the to the Holy Roman Empire, and so the the popes um are, are able to you know kind of assert their desire to forbid lay investiture and, and other things however henry the fourth once he, he becomes old enough uh which was in the middle of like the 1060s you know uh at, at 18 he um he you know starts to sort of get his uh, get a feel for for things and and gra increasingly assert control over um, the empire, and this includes a revival of um, the desire that his father had had to appoint the different um, prince bishops, as well as bishops in other in other posts over which he had control. And so he immediately begins, um, not immediately, within several years after taking uh, taking coming emperor in 1065 by the end of that decade by about 1070 1071 um he is making appointments to you know different poga episcopal vacancies in, within the holy roman empire and so um he's re revived now the struggle around um the lay, lay investiture I, I described the whole process of the, the staff and, and the ring, but the sort of the, the other part of that was really like, this was also, lay investiture also kind of refers to, like properly speaking, it, it refers to this, this process during which, you know, these things are given from the emperor to the, uh, to the bishop. But you know, the, the sort of the deeper meaning, if you will, is that the emperor will decide who the bishop is, that he'll make the call, that, that it's not like, it's not merely like this technicality over who's giving this, who's giving these symbols, 
but but what the conflict was really over is that the emperor is not just investing these bishops with the spiritual symbols he's also he's also choosing them you know who's going to be the bishop and so that's the problem um so henry the fourth by the time gregory the seventh becomes pope henry the fourth is fully engaged in this level of involvement kind of interference in the church and um the, the stage is really set for a conflict between two two leaders who are both, you know, in their own way, uh, very, you know, sort of strong-willed and charismatic. So Gregory the Seventh and Henry the Fourth are are heading for a collision. But before we get to that, um, Gregory the Seventh issues the sort of the document with which or by by which he's sort of most well known. The the, um, the papal dictates or dictatus papi, which um, sort of a series of statements around um, sort of the, the role and authority of the pope. This um, is kind of a statement of of Gregory the Seventh's you know principles, his philosophy, if you will, in the in the dictatus. He says, I mean, among other things. That the, that the the Roman Church was founded by God alone, that the pont that the Pope alone can be can be rightly called universal, that the Pope alone can depose or reinstate bishops, that it is permitted for the Pope to depose emperors, the Pope himself may be judged by no one, and that the Pope may absolve subjects from their loyalty to wicked men and in other words in sort of medieval society and like a feudal society like uh you know the, the sort of pledge of loyalty of you know lords to their noblemen and then ultimately princes to their their king or their emperor you know th- those were tremendously important and so gregory is, is saying the pope has the authority to remove those oaths to to sort of free subjects from their their um their loyalty to you know to whoever whether it's the prince or the emperor or whomever i mean in short if you really think about the consequences it's a kind of ideal of something very close to world rulership for the pope he can depose any political leader he can he can break all of the bonds of political loyalty and and um, and um, sort of the, the bond between the subject and, and their you know their sort of uh, prince or king or whomever. He can depose any ruler. He can depose any bishop. He can be judged by no one. Um, if you put that all together, you know it's an idea where the the pope is. Is sort of a, at the top, you know, with with authority directly from God, and the only one who can be called, you know, universal. Um, and so, it was, um, you know, at the time, to- at that moment in time, you know, certainly among the, the most lofty expressions of papal authority that we'd ever seen. Although I do think, I do think one of his successors will sort of outdo him in stating some of these claims, but. Certainly, by this moment in history, it's, it's the most exalted view of 
the Pope's authority. Now, it's one thing to issue a nice document um, with a bunch of statements about how much authority the Pope has. Uh, it's another thing to, um, you know, exercise the authority that you say you have, especially when it comes to dealing with the Holy Roman Emperor, in this case, Henry IV. Jim, did you have a question? No. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I, I just looked up. I noticed you were unmuted. I didn't know if um, sometimes when people unmute themselves. It's good. That's not no, no, it's, it's totally fine. Um, so, um, again, papal dictates, that's very nice. How does, you know, how does Henry IV going to react to this? Unsurprisingly, you know, he's not particularly persuaded. Um, he basically continues on with his... Um, typical ways, getting involved in the appointment of bishops. In this case, um, he appoints someone to be Archbishop of, of Milan. Um, in the year 1075, Hildebrand writes a letter to Henry calling him to sort of account for this and to withdraw his action. Um, and now we're, now we're in sort of a, a, a conflict that's going to play out over the course of about two years between Henry and Henry IV and Gregory VII, whereby the, um, you know, whereby they'll each sort of go at each other um, after, after the Pope criticizes Henry IV for this appointment to the Arch, Archbishop, for the Archbishop of Milan, um, Henry convenes a, count, uh, yeah, a council in the city of Worms, looks like Worms, so it's a, a, a council of Worms led by Henry IV, which um, condemns, denounces Gregory VII and rejects his authority. Um, you can imagine in light of the Dictatus Papae and, and sort of Gregory VII's view of papal authority um, that, of course, he's not going to respond very positively to denunciation by the Holy Roman Emperor. So he convenes a synod where in 1076, where he excommunicates Henry IV, forbids him uh, having any authority over any part of the Holy Roman Empire or Italy, and releases all of his subjects from their oaths of allegiance to, uh, to Henry IV. I think, you know, I agree with this, it's not my observation, but, I, you know, I, I include in my notes, one historian calls this um, the boldest assertion of papal authority that had ever been made. Henry uh, IV, of course, um, doesn't respond to this very well. Instead, he calls uh, Gregory no pope but a false monk, um, Gregory VII, when he was Hildebrand, spent some time in a monastery um, and had been a monk. And so, um, you know, uh, Henry is saying, you're, you know, you're, you're just a, a, a wannabe monk, a uh, fake monk, and that he needs to uh, withdraw. The, the, the emperor is telling the pope, now you need to withdraw your excommunication of me 
or you you will be damned for all eternity. So certainly the stakes were very high um, in this struggle, and something you know it, it, it's often very hard to reconstruct all of the pieces to, to make sense of you know the, some of the political context that was playing out at the time, but. As far as, you know, from what we know, the Pope's action, you know, didn't immediately take effect. There's a period of time where um, uh, it sort of destabilizes the situation in the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, obviously, Henry IV is not just like, oh, okay, well, the Pope said I'm deposed, so I guess I'll, you know, go retire to, I don't know, where did Germans retire to? I'm not sure. Um you know, it's not like he did that. And so, but what it did accomplish, the, the excommunication and, the, and the, you know, forbidding him any authority, is it weakened Henry IV and it kind of sowed some uncertainty, which caused some of the other no, nobility, some of the other princes and, and other um, sort of political interests to see an opportunity to maybe insert themselves into uh, the leadership role and kind of thwart the ruling dynastic um, uh, sort of family that, that had had become situated at the top of the Holy Roman Empire. And so it, it, it's probably a, a little bit of a stretch, I mean, to call it a civil war, but certainly there's in, a, sort of an increase in the aftermath of this, um, you know, this condemnation by the Pope. Uh, the sort of internal battles within the Holy Roman Empire increase, and, and Henry the Fourth is greatly weakened. Um, an assembly of nobles and the Holy Roman Empire get together and decree that unless Henry is released from this excommunication within a year, so if he gets one year, um, he would be deposed that all of the sort of all of the political leaders all of the nobility in the holy roman empire would you know cease recognizing him as emperor and um you know depose him and elect a new emperor interestingly that same assembly invites the pope uh to come and participate at what they expected would be the um election of a new holy roman em empire uh, sorry emperor so it's um, a kind of a, this dramatic scene at the end of 1076, the year 1076, the beginning of 1077, where, um, well, right at the end of 1076 and into the early months of 1077, um, Gregory VII leaves Rome to go to Augsburg, the city of Augsburg in, in Germany, which is where this... Um, which is where this sort of gathering of the, the nobility was going to be held and Henry was going to be deposed. However, Henry IV realizes that his only chance here is to somehow get out of this situation. And so he, um, he, he, he takes a, a very sort of dramatic step and he, he gets word of uh, Gregory VII's travels and he actually goes to sort of intercept him on the way to Augsburg. And so he, um, in the winter in Northern Italy, as, as the Pope is going towards Germany in a, in a, um, 
uh, a castle in a, a city called, or a town really, called Canosa. Uh, I just typed it in. Um, Henry the Fourth sort of intercepts Pope Gregory the Seventh to, to meet him. And at first, actually, uh, Gregory the Seventh wasn't sure what was happening. Was he going to be attacked? Um, you know, what was what were Gregory? I'm oh, sorry, what were Henry the Fourth's intentions with him? Um, and so the the Pope, you know, kind of takes up in a castle of, of an ally in Canosa, and um, is just sort of you know he gets word that that the emperor is is uh, close by, and they don't they don't know they're getting ready to see what will happen. Um, and what what unfolds is again one of the, the more dramatic events in sort of the medieval narrative, the, the medieval story of church and state relations, which is that um, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry the Fourth appears outside uh, the, the castle at Canosa for three days in, in uh, sort of simple garments in bare feet and kneeling as a penitent. So he undertakes this penitential act outside the Pope's castle, um, you know, the, the, the barefoot sort of in the snow on his knees, uh, the symbolism of that, you know, was a plea for repentance. So, you know, before we move past this, it's like worth pausing to, to you know, notice, acknowledge, whatever the, you know, the, the, the influence of the Pope and the sort of the exercise of the authority that Gregory the seventh had outlined in the Dictatus Papi is like, ha has been uh, impressively implemented. It, it's, it's, it's almost sort of surprising if you think about, um, you know, Gregory the seventh isn't accomplishing this with an army. Um, you know, he's accomplishing this you know, sort of with claims about his own authority from God. Um, and yet there it is. There's the, there's the emperor, you know, barefoot as a penitent outside of his castle for three days. Um, and so at, at that moment in time, it certainly seemed like, the, you know, the papacy had established itself as having, let's say, a superior kind of authority or, or a kind of authority that, that at least was over and above the political authority. The Holy Roman Emperor at this time was, you know, I think pretty safe to say the most powerful political leader in the Western world. Um, and, and yet he, he has no way to, um, to sort of overcome the Pope's actions except to repent, you know, to plead for forgiveness. Um, and that's, that's actually what happened. So, um, upon, you know, going, going through sort of the, the, uh, this whole episode, uh, Gregory the seventh decides that, you know, the sort of the, the just thing to do in light of Henry's actions is to, in fact, release him from excommunication. And this, this sort of thwarts the entire plan that was unfolding for this commit this uh, council to meet in Augsburg and appoint a new emperor. So now um, there's another period of chaos and, and kind of civil war in the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and it will take some time. It will take um, 
a couple years. Um, but uh, uh, Gregory, this I'm sorry, Henry the Fourth will actually once again sort of consolidate, reconsolidate his political power um, within the Holy Roman Empire and um, and, and kind of come back for for another encounter with Gregory the Seventh. So I think, again, for all the significance of the emperor, like, you know, kneeling outside the Pope's castle and what that said about the relative power of church and state, uh, Henry IV's actions were kind of genius. Um, he, he, I mean, the way I guess I think about it is, you know, he lived to fight another day. And, and he will, in fact, fight another day with this very same Pope and, and be more successful. Um, you know, he had to go back to sort of Germany and, and reclaim his authority. It had been dramatically weakened. You know, some, no, some of the nobility had, in fact, sort of stopped being his subjects upon the Pope's wishes. Um, and so, you know, there were a number of battles and, and, and this kind of thing, um, and it took him a few years, but eventually he reconsolidates his power and he comes back to um, a similarly, you know, secure position as to what, what had happened prior to this whole incident. And, um, and he once again um, gets involved in appointing bishops uh, in the 1080s. And so, uh, you know, he survived the potential um, deposition by the, the rest of the German nobility. He kind of thwarted the Pope's plan to replace him. He preserves his his um, sort of lifeline as emperor and then reconsolidates his power and, and again, comes back to another, um, another, uh, encounter this time um this time the uh the emperor does not you know sort of wait for the action you know to come to him if you will he goes to the pope and um uh, actually goes to rome and sort of surrounds the papal palace um uh, gregory the seventh escapes to castle san angelo if you have been to Rome, you've been to St. Peter's Square, you know, the main road that goes like straight down from the river to the um, to St. Peter's Square and the Basilica is called the Via della Conciliazione. And at the end of that, like right on the, the Tiber River there is a big castle, like an old castle. That's Castle San Angelo. There's sort of underground tunnels to get from St. Peter's to it. Um, I don't know. And just... I haven't been to Rome in a while, so it's fun to think about. But, um, you know, so he, he's forced out into sort of, uh, you know, this other castle at, at the threat of um, Henry IV, the kind of renewed Henry IV, um, you know, is able to assert military authority over the, um, the, the Pope. And, and in, this, in this case, kind of comes out victorious over Gregory. Um, the controversy over that, I mean, and so the point is he just kind of ignores the Pope. Uh, Gregory tries the same playbook. He tries excommunicating him second time. 
uh, but to no effect as, again, the sort of military might communicated by the emperor enabled him to continue doing what he wanted. So this is, um, this is uh, sort of a part of, this is the major episode, but not the whole thing, if you will, in, in what is called the investiture controversy. Main, the main flashpoint, sort of the main struggle, if you will, um, was between uh, Henry the Fourth and Gregory the Seventh, but it really started prior to that. Um, you know, Henry the Third and Leo the Ninth, um, Stephen the Ninth, others had had been sort of addressing this issue. It was uneasy. It certainly came to you know ahead with Gregory and and Henry the Fourth, but actually. Um, it gets worse in many ways after this, in that Henry IV's son, also Henry's, Henry V, is even kind of more ruthless than his father. So ruthless, in fact, that Henry V um, forces, uh, sort of instigates a rebellion to force his own father's abdication, uh, which is not a very nice Father's Day present. Um, and, and once he becomes the new Holy Roman Emperor, Henry V, you know, he's even more sort of, not just ruthless, but committed to, you know, a kind of authoritarian style that included appointing, you know, bishops everywhere that he, he wanted to. And so, um, things are getting worse. The popes now, after Gregory VII dies, um, you know, there's a series of popes that tribe mostly unsuccessfully um, with, you know, to, to rein in the lay investiture of, of bishops, you know, the, the appointment by the emperor of bishops. And so this goes on into the early 12th century, into the early 1100s. And um, there's no obvious sort of end in sight. Neither side wants to yield um, until a, a kind of proposal is is offered by actually some some French bishops who were sort of not directly involved, but but had some experience with um, you know the situation in the Holy Roman Empire, and they kind of drafted um, like a I don't want to call it a theology, like a um, yeah, like a theory almost of like what what was happening, you know, in terms of like what's what's our understanding of spiritual authority and temporal authority. And so this, a compromise gets proposed that eventually will resolve or kind of end this controversy over who gets to appoint bishops um, and can, can the emperor, what's the emperor's involvement. And the compromise is um, reached at a meeting, again, in the city of Worms um, concordat just means like an agreement. And so this is the concordat of Worms in 1122. Uh, the, the, the emperor who agrees to this is in fact, Henry V, who, you know, eventually becomes convinced that it, it's sort of in his political interests to just end this constant battle with the popes. The Pope at the time is, um, 
Pope Calixtus II. Uh, Calixtus or Callistus. It's often written both ways, even in English. Um, so the emperor and the pope agree in the Concordat of Worms that the election of bishops in the Holy Roman Empire are to be um, free and canonical in form, which is to say they are to be canonical elections and they're supposed to be free in the sense of there, there should be no coercion. Uh, yeah, no coercion, undue coercion. And so the, the canonical form refers to the selection by the clergy. However, the emperor is permitted to attend the, um, the process. So the emperor is allowed to be present while this uh, choice is being made. The, now, now the critical thing, the emperor renounces, gives up investiture with ring and staff. So he will no longer give the ring and the crozier to the, the bishop upon his installation, as these are deemed symbols of spiritual authority. So, you know, whoever the sort of highest ecclesiastical or sort of spiritual authority is will do that now maybe it's depending on could be an archbishop it could be even the pope depending on you know the situation so the emperor gives up this in exchange the pope um grants the emperor the right of investiture of the temporal possessions of the office by the touch of the royal scepter so again this is very symbolic um in many ways but it's acknowledging the sort of two things going on simultaneously here that, that this person not just being made a bishop they're also being made a prince like they're being made um you know a, a very important very powerful um political temporal ruler just like the pope is the sort of king of the papal states and so okay fair enough the ring and the crozier are symbols of spiritual authority but you know, we can't be blind to the fact that there's temporal authority as well as, as these guys are, are princes. And so the way they work this out is the Pope acknowledges that the emperor, in fact, is the one who bestows the temporal authority or the authority over the worldly affairs, if you will. Um, and he does this by, you know, sort of touching the royal scepter. Um, and so this is the... Um, this is the compromise that we see in, in the Concordat of Worms. And I would say, um, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing here, but it, it, it sort of takes about 50, you know, maybe closer to a hundred years before it seems like this is kind of the, you know, the, the, the practice on a, on a pretty consistent basis like so many other things just because you have an agreement doesn't mean everyone immediately starts abiding by it um but nevertheless it, it is it does set the set the course you know for the next several centuries really of the understanding of you know different realms of authority you know the spiritual and the temporal um you know different popes will claim that their authority sort of transcends you know even the temporal uh, temporal authority, even that of, of kings and emperors. Um, but, you know, the compromise at the Concordat of Worms and the general sort of 
um, acknowledgement of the church moving forward is that, you know, the Pope has certain spiritual authority as it pertains to bishops, um, but temporal authority as it pertains to princes or kings or whatever is generally in the domain of the political ruler. Any questions about that? Next, um, our next topic here on the outline, which uh, you know I think is important, is the Crusades. Now, luckily, everyone um, has a thorough and accurate understanding of the Crusades. There's nothing controversial about them. Now, I, don't, I don't even know if we need to talk about them um, because they're so well understood. Um, I realize I only have about six minutes left, so I'm not not going to attempt to sort of rush through. But I, I can say some things by by way of context, um, that, that I think will help, um, you know, help our understanding. So, you know, there are, I, I said this in our first class, probably, you know, there are a number of ways you can sort of do history and look at history from, you know, the political angle or the social perspective or the economic perspective. And when you sort of focus those different lenses, on this, uh, you know, period of like the 11th and 12th centuries, um, you can see some things that, that help, again, shed some sort of understanding or, or con provide some context for the Crusades. So uh, if we're looking at economic sort of uh, uh, economic circumstances in the decades, the century leading up to the Crusades, we would notice, for example, that the, the late 10th and early uh, midway through the 11th century were incredibly difficult, um, difficult times economically in Western Europe. Um, just by way of example, between the year, the 70 years between 970 and 1040, um, of those 70 years, 48, so let's call it 50 of those years were famine years. Um, you know, the last decade of the 10 hundreds, the 11th century was, was very bad economically as well with, with famine and other problems. Um, so there were, uh, you know, it, it was very rough economically. Um, it, famine was, was widespread. Um, at the same time, um, you see, you know, not, a, not as much in like, you know, parts of France, let's say, or Italy, but you know, in the outskirts of sort of Western Europe and Spain and other parts, you see this continued struggle with Islam and the increase in sort of its territorial expansion and concern. Um, you know, in, in Spain, it's it's really the struggle of um, the Reconquista or the reconquering um, that's that's going to be underway, but but not immediate. That you know the, the the Christians in Spain could drive the, the Muslims out. And so, you know, you have difficult economic conditions. You have the sort of the, the is Islam factor. You also have sort of in sort of religious, the religious mood was very, um, was very uh, otherworldly focused, if I could say. Um, 
and, and maybe that's, you know, I, I think it's, it's actually not very surprising. You know, when this world really sucks, uh, when it's a miserable place to be, it, it is often the case that people's attention turns, you know, much more to sort of the promises of the next world. And so there is a sort of, um, you know, it's a, a theme in preaching and, and just even in the popular piety of the time, kind of the misery of earth in contrast with the blessedness of heaven. Um, and then finally, as part of the sort of popular piety or sort of a religious practice, and I've mentioned this before, um, pilgrimages continue to be seen as this great, as this great um, practice with, with great spiritual value. And so, you know, we'll go into the sort of the details here of the different crusades, but if you put together, you know, the economic struggles, the importance of um, pilgrimages, the idea of, you know, the blessedness of the next life, the threat of Islam, what, what we're going to see is sort of all of these factors coalescing, and then there's a call for this this religious crusade, this kind of holy quest to reclaim, um, you know, Jerusalem, to reclaim the, the sort of the, the parts of uh, the Middle East that are the, the most sacred sites for Christians from from the control of the Muslims. And the Pope is calling for this crusade, and the Pope is saying, you know, if you die while on this crusade, you, your sins will be forgiven and you will go to heaven. I mean, it's and and sort of the sense of you know uh, getting out of this you know very difficult social context of your you know small village in, in France or in, in Italy or something to to embark on an adventure. Yeah, it's dangerous, but it's it's you know it's like like nothing else that people of the time would have ever experienced. And on top of that, you know, there is all of this sort of religious feeling around it and and the promise from the Pope of kind of rewards for participation. Um, so we'll, we'll turn to sort of looking at these in, in some more detail. Um, but I just thought in the time we had left, I, I'd maybe provide some of that context, which, again, is it, not to, to make a sort of justification or, or say, hey, therefore, these are good or therefore, these are bad. Um, I will lay my cards on the table now and, and say, you know, at the end of this, I think we, we can look at it and see some positive effects. I think, however, there's sort of a fundamental um, incompatibility, you know, within Christianity, sort of around the notion of a, a holy war or religious war. Um, again, I think we can study this and understand the, you know, some of the, um, the causes. And then again, see some of the, the very sort of unexpected maybe positive benefits that, that result from the aftermath of the Crusades. But I think that the notion of holy war um, is is something that sort of fundamentally, you know, can, is insurmountable in, in sort of thinking about this. But again, that's less of a historical claim. So I'm more sharing sort of my own personal perspective on it. Um, and so we'll turn to that next, but uh, any, we're at time, so any questions on any of this kind of context? Great, well thanks very much everyone, appreciate it as always, have a good week, and uh, see you next Monday.